0: Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Timothy 3:16 through 4-4. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church Thankful to be one of your pastors. Thank you for the gift. Haven't opened it, whatever it is. It wasn't making any noises. It wasn't living, so I'm happy about that. I don't need any animals. I've got five children, okay? Um, Well, good morning and welcome. This is, we are in a new sermon series. This is the second week on the series called Semper Reformanda. That is Latin for always reforming. This was the slogan of the Protestant Reformation that began 504 years ago on October 31st. The full version of the slogan is Ecclesia Reformata et Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Now we are studying what made the Reformation such a powerful historical movement. Today, we are going to begin to look at the first of five solas of the Reformation. And we're doing this because we want to see God do something similar in our day and age. We believe we need a Reformation today. We need a move of God today. And the move of God doesn't happen as we progress most of the time. It happens as we go back and reform ourselves to the Word of God. If you study the Reformation, you learn that the Reformation changed the world, specifically the Western world, for the better. It led to freedom, personal freedom, political freedom, economic freedom, intellectual freedom, religious freedom. Many of the values that we have today that are birthed in freedom or or around freedom came as a result of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. Now, the first and most important of all of the five solas is sola scriptura, okay? Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now it's the most important of all the solas because all the solas hang on this. Think of sola scriptura as a rod and everything else hanging on that rod. If the rod comes down, everything else comes down. We would not know Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, which is faith alone. Sola Christus, which is Christ alone. Sola de gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. If it wasn't for sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so we need to study, what does this mean? Sola scriptura. And I think it's one of the most important, it is the most important sola, but it's also the sola that's under attack today. It's been always under attack. But it's been, uh, that sola has had the cultural uh, scope, right? It's been in the the crosshairs of the cultural scope today. And the thing is, you can't know God, you can't know yourself, you can't know salvation, you can't know about eternity unless you understand Scripture, what it is, how we got it, etc. So, let me pray for us. Got a big task this morning. Thankfully, you've already given me my gift, so you can't take it back after I say what I'm going to say today. Uh, I appreciate that. If it's the last one I get, it's the last one I get. That's okay. Let me pray for us. Let's get started. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you've disclosed yourself to us, the way you've given us your word to teach us who you are, who we are, what's wrong with the world, how it can be made right. You teach us all these things through your word. I pray this morning that you would help me speak your word and your people would hear you speaking to them and they would not harden their heart. I pray that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I pray that you would do all of this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, let me ask this question first. Why do we need Scripture. Why do we need Scripture? Why do we need the Bible at all? Let me answer that, and then I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes uh, unpacking this answer. Without the Bible, we are all just guessing about God, about life, about meaning, and what happens after we die. Let me say this. Without the Bible, everything that's important in our life, we're just guessing about. Let me unpack that for us. Psalm 19.1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. This says... The psalmist is teaching us here that God's creation speaks to us and testifies to the fact that there is a creator, okay? Creation says, there's a creator behind me that made me. But that knowledge of a creator is not enough to save anyone. The knowledge of a creator doesn't tell us why, doesn't give us meaning or purpose. Also, there are many people who look at God's creation And they don't see a creator at all. They have been taught to see creation as a result of natural selection and evolution. To think that everything we see around us is the result of a long series of random mutations takes far too much faith for me to believe in. Unfortunately, since it's called a theory, we think it's scientific. We don't really think about it very much. We just accept it. Okay, sounds good, Doc. I accept that. But if you think about it, to think that everything that exists today is just a series of random events gets us here, is akin to believing that a series of tornadoes could rush through the same junkyard for 100 years and accidentally build a fully functioning Tesla Model X cool story. So why do human beings, in the light of creation, not believe in God? Well, we could guess. Lots of people do. There's thousands of podcasters and YouTubers and TikTokers. They're the best. Out there who love to wax on and on about different theories. But do you know what a theory is? It's the modern word for myth. It's a myth that is yet to be proven that tries to explain something we don't know. This is the way human beings have been trying to explain the natural world and the supernatural world for as long as we have records. They used myths. They used stories. The Enuma Elish is one of the oldest. The story features a great battle between the gods Marduk and Tiamat that results in the creation of earth and mankind. Here's my point. Myths were ways of making sense of the wonder and mystery of the created world. From the epic of Gilgamesh to the Greek pantheon, These myths have been told from the Native Americans. These myths are are out there and they're just an attempt to explain what is. We're dropped into this planet. We see creation. This couldn't have just happened. So we come up with these myths, these theories, these stories to explain things. Today, because we're so much smarter than anyone else who's ever came before us, we call these myths theories. And that makes us sound really smart. And then we don't have to think about them anymore. If you call it a theory, you don't actually have to think about it. Listen, just because you name something with a scientific sounding name doesn't mean you actually have thought about it or understand it at all. Here's two really simple ones that we all totally understand gravity and photosynthesis. Listen, we all get gravity, right? There it was! Got it? All right, check. Let's move on to something else, right? Listen how my favorite author, Indy Wilson, uh, explains gravity and photosynthesis to his students. He, He quote, this is him, I'm gonna quote him extensive quote here from a podcast from this past week. He says this, you are a person, a being who balances on two appendages, sucked down by mass somehow with a force known as gravity. It's sucking us down on this ball of mostly lava and we balance on the outside of it. It's pulling us down and if we kick our toe, guess what? It goes down. So does that water bottle. It slams me down to the surface. We have people who are super talented like LeBron James who are really good at trying to leap off the surface of this ball of lava. Now back out Google Earth style, pull the camera out a bit and look at Earth. At the, at that, from that perspective, just how high off the Earth is LeBron James jumping? Like his mass and his size and inability to get anywhere off the planet and we look at it and we all cheer. Look how high He's jumping. So much higher than our heads. And this ball of lava is whipping around a star. And on this ball of lava, we have things like apple trees sitting here using the sun, capturing power from a star and grabbing air like my breath, ripping it in half using star power to make apples and bark and leaves out of air. This is all happening all over the place. Apple trees are using starlight. They're using the power from a star to make apples out of air. And then you pick the apple and you have a hole at the top. That's this right here. You have a hole at the top lined with bones, surrounded by scar tissue, which we occasionally decorate. And then we shove that apple made by a star. Star power into our faces, into this hole in the top, and we smash it with the bones, and it is sweet, and taste buds have been invented so that we can taste it, and it's the right season, and you push it down your middle, and your body harvests all the energy that has been placed there by the star, and then uses it to make make things like fingernails and hair, and we're a completely star-based people, star power, star fuel. Every single carbon-based animal is built off of photosynthesis, which is that sterile word we use for an extraordinarily magical process. Magical in the sense of supernatural. Call it gravity. What is pulling us? What is sucking, what's grabbing onto me and pulling me down? What's behind gravity? Oh, it's gravity. It's photosynthesis. On to the next thing. Let's talk about stuff that really matters. What's behind it? What's making it do that? Is there a creator or is this all accidental? We don't think about those questions. Here's the point I'm getting to. What if all of those ancient myths were just mankind trying to figure out God, making sense of creation in the natural world, and the supernatural world, until God actually revealed himself to us. What if God chose to reveal himself to us in a really specific way? Well, that's what makes Christianity so unique. That's what we actually believe. We believe God has revealed himself to us First, through the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. And then the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God, and dwelt among us. And people saw him and they wrote about him and they wrote down their observations. and they wrote down their experience with him. And then we have a revelation of God in what's called the New Testament. First in the gospels, writing down about what Jesus did. And then in the works, the rest of the work of the New Testament, God has been inspiring and guiding this process of revelation so that we could know what we could not know any other way with certainty. So we could know him with certainty. So if God has really revealed himself to us in the scriptures and given us knowledge that we cannot know in any other way, we should consult those scriptures when trying to answer important questions about life. So back to our question today, why do human beings not see a creator behind the creation? This is what Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 23 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look, 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 look. Who by their unrighteousness, so there's something about man that's unrighteous, that's broken, that's bent, that's not good, that's not the way God wants it, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress. Think of, you have a beach ball and you're trying to suppress it under the water. It takes constant effort to keep that down. That's the knowledge of God, the reality that there is a creator, and we are trying to suppress it as hard as we can. Keep going for what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that that, that he has made. So The thing that's been created testifies to a creator. This makes sense. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's what the scripture says. Because of our sinful human nature, we suppress the truth about God. The truth that there is a God is obvious. It's a truth that is, quote, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And yet because... Sinners do not want there to be a God. We naturally suppress the truth of his existence. Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say that actually the trick is on us. If we, this is what mankind does. I'm not gonna worship you, God. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. But God has built us in such a way. We are not our own. We belong body and soul to God, our creator. And God, here's the trick. God made us as worshiping beings. Here's what it means. It means you have, think of a garden hose, you go over and you turn the spigot on, right? That thing is constantly pouring out. That's you. You have worship constantly pouring out all the time. The only choice you have is to point that garden hose towards God or towards something else, right? And here's the reality. You become like what you worship. So if you point that towards God, the omnibenevolent, omnipotent, all powerful, all good, all knowing God, you become more like him, more gracious, more kind, more, all right? If you point it towards idols, if you point it towards any created thing, you become more like it. Deaf, dumb, ignorant, foolish, dark, depraved, dying. He says, you're not gonna stop worshiping. I'm not gonna worship you, God. I'm gonna worship the stuff that you made instead. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Good luck with that one. The worship of idols leads to, quote, futility in our thinking. Our foolish hearts descend into darkness and God hands us over to reap what we've sown. That's what scripture says in verse 24 through 25. Therefore, God gave them up. God handed them over. God said, that's what you wanna do? Here you go. You're going to reap what you sow now. He gave them up, look, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Here we see one of the main, if not the main reasons, human beings do not want there to be a God. God speaks to the Apostle Paul and Paul writes to the Romans, it's the lusts of our heart, namely sexual liberation. We want to be autonomous. Autonomous means a law to our own. There's nothing above me. There's no law that I must submit to do submit to. There's no one that can tell me what to do with my body. We want to do this to be a law to our own in order to sleep with whoever we want to, whenever we want to, without fear of judgment or anyone telling us what we're doing is wrong. Our country is so arrogant that we think this is actually a progressive value that we have discovered. We have been liberated and enlightened. And this is clearly nothing new. What we're reading in Romans 1 was written 2,000 years ago. And it was was true then. And it's just as true now as, as it was written then. Now, I say all of that to say this, we need a reformation today. We need God to do something similar to what he did as he did in the Protestant Reformation, but the reformation we need today is going to look a lot different from the Protestant Reformation. See, at the Protestant Reformation, the question wasn't, Do we believe in God or do we believe the scriptures? That wasn't the question, or that wasn't the problem. The problem was they didn't have the scriptures. The the Roman Catholic Church had the scriptures and they were the only ones who could read them. They're the only ones who could interpret them. They're the only ones who could teach them. They're the only ones who could understand them is what they said. So when Martin Luther said sola scriptura, he was saying the ultimate authority, In the world was Scripture above the Pope, above the Catholic Church, above kings. That's what he was saying. Okay, so the Reformation won that battle, right? The church, Scripture itself is above the church. Scripture itself is above Rome, right? Scripture itself is the ultimate authority, The Reformation won that battle. The full Bible has been translated into 704 languages. The New Testament has been translated into an additional 1551 languages. It's the best-selling book of all time. The reformers, through many great difficulties, including many of their own deaths as martyrs, managed to free the words of God from the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and get it into the hands of farmers and blacksmiths and barbers and bakers and mothers and fathers and the word of God was let loose and it turned the Western world upside down like it did when the apostles first preached it in the first century, okay? We are not in the same place as the reformers were. We have a different problem. We all have, most of us have access to the word of God. We don't see the Pope above the word of God. We got a different problem. And I think we can see it in something I said last week and I want to repeat it this week, something Martin Luther quoted when he was commanded to recant or else, to repudiate his teachings. This is what he said. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Luther there said this. He would not recant, which means take back and repudiate and say it's no longer true. I don't believe it. He would not recant unless they could show him in the scriptures through plain reason how his teachings were in error with Scripture. Now, this is important. The Bible is not a book that fell out of the sky, right? When, when some alien comes to earth or something and just throws the big book out. Of, Look out, here it is, we've got the one. No, God inspired people and even through their personalities, he encouraged them to write and he led them to write the scriptures. It is not a book that requires you to shut off your brain and just believe it. The Bible and plain reason work together. The problem with our day and age, and this is it, the problem with our day and age, and many people think that this kind of this wedge started happening when Luther stood up and and did this, but I think it happened long before. But the problem with our day and age is that we have made our reason our ultimate authority. Luther's day... The church, the Roman Catholic church was the ultimate authority. They even told kings what to do sometimes, right? And the word of God was even under that and the people under that. In our day and age, yeah, we've kind of kicked the Pope out of that position, most of us, right? But what did we put in its place? Is it sola scriptura? Is scripture our ultimate authority? I don't think it is. I think our reason is now ultimate authority. There's two pieces to this. One, reason itself, you could call it Rationalism, what is rationalism? Here's a rationalism. I only believe things that make sense to me. Thomas Jefferson was a rationalist. You ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson only believed what seemed reasonable to him. So he literally took the Bible and he cut out all of the passages that talked about miracles, miracles, that talked about supernatural things, angels, demons, um, you know, resurrection, the afterlife. Anything that could not be studied by science, he took it out. And what he had left was a book of morals. A book of laws. And he said, here's my Bible. Here's what I believe. He, had, he now had something that was totally reasonable to him. It wasn't Christianity anymore, even though it had some words that were the words of God. It didn't have all the words of God, so it was no longer Christianity. It was now a totally different religion you could call moralism. Now, there are many people today who basically have this same faith. I only believe what science can prove. No, you don't. You believe in gravity. Science can't prove it. We don't understand it. Google it. I did this morning just to make sure. Still haven't figured that one out. But I bet you if you're on top of your roof, you trust it before you jump. You think about it. You know, I'm not really sure if we've really worked this one out, but I'm pretty sure I'm gonna go splat if I jump off of this thing. Listen. I only believe what science can believe. I only believe what's rational to me. There's two problems with it, ultimately, at least two. One, that's actually based on faith. And two, it's a circular argument, which is a logical fallacy. Here's the circular argument. My reason is my ultimate authority because it seems reasonable to me to make it so. Let me say it again. My reason is my ultimate authority because it seems reasonable to me to make it so. Hmm. Luther called reason in this sense, naughty word time, the devil's whore. That's what Luther called it. He meant reason that tried to usurp the Word of God, reason above sola scriptura. And I said it was this, there's two problems. One, it's a circular argument. Two, it it's actually takes faith to believe that. Well, what is the faith? Well, if you believe in only what you can prove or only what's rational to you, that's actually a religion. That's a faith-based approach to life. But your faith is actually in your rationality, something you have no logical reason to believe or to trust. Why should you trust your rationality if it's based in evolution? Now, so that's the problem with rationalism. But you've got this other side of the problem that I think, I mean, we've got a lot of that's going on today. But the other side of it is this. When you say that your reason and your feelings and your understanding is your ultimate authority, you are claiming to have a perspective on the universe, on life, on meaning, on marriage, on whatever it is, That you cannot possibly possess. What if God was one of us? That would be really terrible. Be like one of these ants walking around going, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on with the universe. God isn't like us. He's got a different perspective from us. And when you say that your feelings, your thoughts, your interpretation, your understanding is your ultimate infallible God, you're claiming to sit in judgment upon God himself and your perspective is better than God's perspective. Really? Really? seems this, this is where the battle rages the hottest today. Who or what has ultimate authority in the the world? Who or what has ultimate authority? See, Luther's day was the church, no longer anymore. Who is it now? Is it reason? Is it individualism? Is it me? Is it God and his word or is it science or reason or an individual's wants and wishes? Here's where the battle is raging the hottest right now. And here is where Christians must stand strong. Christians believe that God's word, sola scriptura, scripture alone has ultimate authority and everyone must submit themselves humbly before him if they want to know him and the salvation he has made possible. Look at how God describes this for us. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. You can open up your Bibles with me. All scripture, scripture referring to itself As scripture. What is scripture? Scripture is the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. We often call this a book. It's not really a book. It's a collection of books. It's more like a library. 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. Well, how can we trust that? The whole process was divinely inspired and guided by the holy spirit look what it says in our text all scripture is breathed out by god god breathed divinely inspired think about this god he's the only one god is holy god cannot lie God cannot speak falsely. Therefore, all of the words of Scripture are completely true and without error in the original manuscripts. God's words are the ultimate standard for truth because of who God is and what a word is. It's His law, it's His reality. Since the Scriptures are the very words of God, they are authoritative. They have his authority behind them. So if he tells us something and we don't do it or we disobey it, we're breaking his authority, right? We're, We're violating his authority. Since they're authoritative, they're binding. They are literally the laws of the universe. Scientific laws, those are his. Guess what? He's got moral laws too. It's his universe. He built it. He designed it. He unveiled it. Every single human must obey these laws or suffer the consequences. I often say, listen, God gave us the ability. We can break his laws. But when you break his laws, they break you. You can defy the law of gravity. It will win every time. You can defy moral laws, and you will reap the consequences. The scriptures, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's good. It benefits the one. Look, profitable for what? Teaching. Okay, so we should teach the word. It needs to be taught. This is the thing. None of us are born understanding the word. None of us are born understanding the way the world is and who we are and who God is and what must I do to be saved and how's God set the thing up? You're not gonna figure it out through science. You're gonna figure some things out through his general revelation, but you're never going to understand the stuff that's been revealed to us in scripture unless you're taught the scriptures. More, veggie Tales didn't do this. You need to get in. That's a big book. You need to get in here. Okay, profitable for teaching, for reproof, whoa, for reproof, for stopping us in our tracks, for saying, you're going the wrong direction. That's not the way to live your life. What you're doing is wrong. You need to change. So, scripture does. For correction, I'm going this direction. I read scripture, somebody teaches me scripture, I say, oh, I need to be corrected. I need to go in this direction if I want the good life. And for training in righteousness, learning how to live the good life, learning how to do the right things, look, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. To put this in theological terms, this is speaking of the sufficiency of Scripture. I don't need anything else to live a good life other than Scripture. I need Scripture. That's what I need to understand God, to understand his way of salvation, to understand who I am and how he made the world and what's wrong with the world and what must I do to live in the world. I only need Scripture. Cornelius Van Til, a Dutch-American philosopher and theologian for the 20th century, said this, this book is authoritative in everything it addresses, and it addresses everything. Now, it doesn't, it's not gonna tell you what to do with your cell phone, but it's gonna talk about wisdom. It's gonna talk about prudence. It's gonna talk about self-control, all things that help you govern the use of your cell phone. If we wanna know how to live a good life, how to find meaningness, meaning and happiness and purpose, In the world that God created, we must know his instructions in living in this world. If we want to know how to know God, how to be forgiven of our sins, how to find eternal life, we must know the scriptures. If we want to know how to build a life and a family and a nation that honors God, we must know the scriptures. This is why it says that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If you want to know how to be truly competent in anything in life, to be equipped for every good work imaginable, you must know and follow the eternal words of God that never fail, never lie, or never contradict themselves. But here's the truth. This is not popular today. People want to put their faith in science, in self-help books. Most of us spend way more time studying and searching YouTube for ways to deal with our problems than we do searching the scriptures. And guess what? This is no surprise to the apostle Paul. Paul wrote what I'm about to read about 2,000 years ago. Paul's writing to a young church planter, Timothy. God is writing through Paul to Timothy. And he's trying to encourage him. He's Timothy, this is what God has called you to do. Timothy's probably writing like most church planters would. People are going crazy. I don't know what to do. This is what Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, do this, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You better be ready. You can't just, oh, I need 20 hours before I can talk about this scripture. I need, I need to study my text. And I need to get everything together. No, you better know the word of God it enough. When somebody comes and asks you a question, you're ready to preach the word right there. Be ready in season and out of season. Uh-oh. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Paul is telling Timothy, when you preach, you ain't done nothing until you get in their business. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Don't just speak with flowery language. God loves us all and we're all his children. He just, oh, he's just love. Can you feel it in the room? Okay, go on out. Back to your day, back to your day, back to your week. Enjoy it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. With complete patience. This is interesting. So studying this. See, the temptation for a preacher, especially a young preacher like Timothy, he's gonna preach the word, but when the word doesn't seem to be enough, When the word doesn't seem to be working and people aren't responding the way I want them to respond, people aren't changing the way that they should be changing, the church isn't growing the way that I think it should grow, preachers tend to lose patience with the word of God and start preaching something else in order to keep people in the seats. Because guess what? Preachers want to be appreciated too. Preachers want people to like them too. And so the temptation for a preacher is to preach the word or only parts of the word that people like and not to use it to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. The temptation is to lose patience with the word and go on to something else. Paul's telling Timothy and he's telling me, My job isn't primarily to grow a church. It's to preach the word. My job isn't primarily to make you happy. It's to preach the word of God. My job isn't to try to change you. It's to preach the word of God. And guess what? If I do that well enough, some of you, by the grace of God, will come to faith, and others will walk away from God sad. Why? Because you don't want God. You want to be God of your own life. And you cannot endure sound teaching from the word of God. And the word of God itself will actually repel you. Why? Because you don't want God's word to interrupt your way of living. You don't want God. You want God to approve of what you're already doing. So you know what you're going to do? The same thing... These people did 2,000 years ago. Look what they did. The time is coming. Paul is here, bro. It's already here. It was there then, even more so now. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Yo, listen, I get it. Listening to sermons it takes endurance, okay? I get it. You gotta endure it. Time is coming, Paul says. I say it's here now. People will not endure Sound teaching, look at this. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. Think about what it would take in Paul's day and age, in Timothy's day and age, to accumulate for themselves teachers. You'd have to probably go to the temple across town. I mean, how many, te- how many teachers are there in that day and age? You're gonna, you can't go to Amazon and buy 50 top books from the top teachers, right? Printing press hasn't been created, right? So what's going on? You're gonna have to go, it's gonna take a lot of work to accumulate for yourselves teachers. But today, what does it take today? You got everything you need, the phone in your pocket. You want, to t- you want a preacher that'll never challenge you to obey Jesus and give your money financially? You can find a preacher for that. You want a preacher who aligns perfectly with everything you believe politically? You can find a preacher for that. You want a preacher who's too chicken to say anything about sexuality? You can find a preacher about that. You want a preacher that gets up here and wears a dress and is homosexual and and says all these things are okay. You can find a preacher for that. Guess what? Paul knew these days were coming and they're here. You can find a teacher to suit your itching ears. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to wander off into myths. They're not teaching the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine. Paul is about to go hard in the paint. He says this, or do you not know? Stop. Why would I say this? Why would I do this? You've already gave me your present, so that's fine. I've got it. I can say hard things now. I'm not up here for your approval. I'm here because I believe this is the word of God. And this is the only way you will find God. There's no other way. Paul says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, unrighteous, those who break God's law. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they will not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will not enter into his kingdom. They will not go to heaven when they die. They will not have their sins forgiven. They will not inherit the new heavens and the new, the new earth. The unrighteous will not go to heaven. They will not know God here and now. Now here's what he's about to do. Sins are like grapes. They come in bunches, okay? And he's about to pull off a cluster and he's gonna pull, he's gonna He's gonna just name a bunch of sins. These are not all the sins. These are not the worst sins. These are just some sins, more than likely, that the church in Corinth we're dealing with He's gonna pluck them off one by one and describe for us what an unrighteous person does. What they're be- This isn't a desire. This is an action. These are all actions. Keep reading. Do not be deceived. What do you say here? Other preachers, other teachers will tell you these things are okay to do. God's word says they're not. Don't be deceived. That's what he's saying. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, sexually immoral. We don't even have these words in our vocabulary anymore. What is immoral? Doing anything with your body with another person who's not your spouse. Any sexuality practiced outside of the bonds of marriage, the covenantal bonds of marriage is sexual immorality. It's a sin against God and against your own body. And it makes you unrighteous. And the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. Keep going. Nor idolaters who worship the created thing, be it money, be it sex, be it power, be it football. Nor adulterers, people that cheat on their spouse. Nor men who practice homosexuality. And the Greek words here are explicit. They talk about the active and the passive participant in that act. Again, acts. Not desires, nor thieves, people who take what's not theirs, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Let's just make fun of everything, the scornful, the mockers, nor swindlers, crooked people. Look, Will they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the reality that none of us would know unless God revealed it to us in his word. You look at our world, everybody's doing it. It can't be a big deal. God says, anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 is about to blow your mind. And such were some of you. What? Anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you. Past tense. If you do these things, you become unrighteous. Well, if I'm unrighteous, I'm unrighteous. How can I become righteous out of being unrighteous? Who's going to righteous the unrighteous? How can I get righteous? I'm unrighteous. I need to be righteous. Such were some of you. There's a way to go from being unrighteous to being righteous. Sinner to forgiven. How? There's only one way. And the only way we know this is sola scriptura. God showed us this in his scriptures. Read, keep reading. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. What? God creates the world. We screw it up and rebel against him. He says, don't destroy it. Don't worry about it. I've got a plan. Jesus, the son of God who's perfectly holy, when it was time for that plan to be fulfilled, he steps out of heaven and comes down and puts on flesh. We call it the incarnation. We celebrate it at Christmas time, right? Right? He puts on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that word, because he's holy, he lived a perfect life. He lived the righteous life. He never did any of those sins. He was never unrighteous, 100% righteous. And God looked down from heaven and said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said, but I ain't done yet. And on the night that he was betrayed, as our representative He steps in mankind's place and he says, God, what are you going to do with all that unrighteousness out there? All that unrighteousness, what are you going to do with it? I know what you can do with it. Put it on me. Put it on me. And I know you're holy. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? And sin can't be in your presence. And you can't even look upon a sinner like that. So you're holy. So I know you've got to pour out your wrath. And you've got to judge the brokenness and the sin and the blackness of our society. So I want you to do that. I want you to put all that unrighteousness on me. And as the great judge of the universe, I want your gavel to rain down. And I want to take that pain. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. Nobody else in the universe has ever done that. Nobody could do it. He was perfectly holy, so he didn't deserve to die. He had never sinned. And he was 100% man, so he could actually take our place, and actually the sin could get put on him. And then he gets up out of the grave. He's resurrected three days later. Three days later, he's resurrected. What does that prove? That God accepted the, the sacrifice. That God said, I will accept your work for theirs. And then he gets glorified at the right hand of the Father and now when he gives us grace and faith and when we believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus's perfect righteousness gets credited to us. So how does the unrighteous get righteous? Only by grace, through faith in Christ. And who gets the glory for that? God alone. How do we know this? Scripture alone. There is no other name by which mankind can be saved. This isn't a way, it's the way. And we only know it because God gave us His Word. Praying this morning. And when we leave here today, God could say to you, and such were some of you. You're not that way anymore. You've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. You're now in Christ. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Every man is a liar, but you cannot lie. We trust in nothing else. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit did what it was gonna do, that your word did not fall on deaf ears and that you produce a harvest of faith and righteousness. Pray that you would help your people believe. As we come to the table, as believers come to your table this morning, may we be in awe of what you've done how you've given us your word, how you gave us your son, how you give us this meal, how you give us this church, how you give us these people. You are so gracious to us. I pray that we would eat this in faith that the, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us and the cup represents the blood that was shed for us, the cup of the new covenant that no longer are we judged by our, just simply by our own works and our own actions, but we've been placed in Christ and Christ's righteousness has been placed upon us and now we're saved through grace alone and by faith alone. Would you encourage us as we eat together? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.